All right. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give thanks for your mercies to us today, for your care, and all your good gifts in our Lord Jesus Christ, and the right to call upon your name through the forgiveness of our sins and the righteousness with which you have clothed us. We ask for your blessing as we study your word, enlighten us, impress us with your majesty, with the great work you have accomplished for us in Jesus Christ and with our own sin and insignificance. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay. Uh, last week we were talking about the freedom and bondage of the will, and uh, we talked about the fact that as we have fallen in Adam, we cannot will or desire the good, but are slaves to sin. And I thought what I would do now, since we kind of got started on that subject, is uh, go right on to all the doctrines of grace. The, what are known as the five points of Calvinism, or um, the five points of the canons of Dort. Um, so I think what we'll do is, because we were talking about the bondage of the will last time, is talk about, just extend the scope of that a little bit and talk about the doctrine of total depravity this uh, time what's known as the doctrine of total depravity. And I want to begin by looking at our confessional statements about the doctrine as a way of learning from the church in the past and seeing what our fathers taught in the past regarding this. So in the, let's look at the three forms of unity and what I want to do is just read through these, uh, these parts of the uh, confessions on this doctrine. Let's begin with the Heidelberg Catechism on uh, question and answer five is the first question and answer that deals with this subject. It's a very uh, brief statement and not a complete statement. It's not intended to be a complete statement. But the question is, can you keep all this, that is all the law of God, perfectly? And the answer is no, for I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. So I'm inclined to hate God and my neighbor. I'm not inclined towards goodness, towards obedience, but inclined the opposite way. The second um, question and answer in the Catechism is question and answer eight. And this is a much more complete statement of the doctrine of total depravity. This is found on page 20 of the three forms of unity. But are we... Yeah, question and answer eight, page 20. But are we so depraved that we are completely incapable of any good and prone to all evil? So. The basic definition of the uh, doctrine is, de is contained in the question, and then the, the answer is given simply, yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. So here you have a very brief but very um, forceful statement of the doctrine of total depravity. We are so depraved that we are completely incapable of any good and prone to all evil. Again, inclined to all evil. And the Catechism does not say there that we do all evil. That would not be true. But we are inclined to all evil. So that's the second statement. Then you have the Belgic Confession. And here we have to turn to page 59. Page 59, article 14. going to begin here uh, some lines down from the beginning because the beginning is the um, 
positive statement of how God created man. We're going down one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine lines to the ninth line in that article with the words, and being thus. So that, that's where we're starting. And being thus become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways. He has lost all his excellent gifts, which he had received from God, this is man, and retained only small remains thereof, which, however, are sufficient to leave man without excuse. For all the light which is in us is changed into darkness, as the scriptures teach us, saying, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then uh, in the next paragraph, just at the first line of the next page, man is but a slave to sin. And then there are some quotations from different scripture passages at the end of that article, and we'll get back to those quotations later on. So that's the Belgic Confession. Then we turn to the canons of Dort, and this is the third and fourth heads of doctrine. Canons of Dort, the third and fourth heads of doctrine. The corruption of man, his conversion to God, and the manner thereof. On page 94. 94. Yeah, 94. And there are several articles. This is the most extensive definition of the doctrine of depravity that we have in our confessions. Um, We have, again, a positive statement at the beginning of Article 1. I'll read it this time. Man was originally formed after the image of God. His understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of his Creator and of spiritual things. His heart and will were upright, all his affections pure, and the whole man was holy. And then we get the doctrine of depravity, at the beginning anyway. But revolting from God, by the instigation of the devil and by his own free will, he forfeited these excellent gifts, and in the place thereof became involved in blindness of mind, horrible darkness, vanity, and perverseness of judgment, became wicked, rebellious, and obdurate in heart and will, and impure in his affections. Then you have the doctrine of um, this depravity communicated to children in Article 2. Man, after the fall, begat children in his own likeness. A corrupt stock produced a corrupt offspring. Hence all the posterity of Adam, Christ only accepted, have derived corruption from their original parent, not by imitation, as the Pelagians of old asserted, but by the propagation of a vicious nature in consequence of the just judgment of God. So the real statement you have about the depravity there is that phrase, vicious nature. And that's in itself a very strong statement, of course. We have a vicious nature. Then Article 3, Therefore all men are conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin and in bondage thereto, and without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, They are neither able nor willing to return to God to reform the depravity of their nature or to dispose themselves to reformation. And then in Article 4, uh, a um, qualification, a slight qualification of this doctrine. There remain, however, in man since the fall, the glimmerings of natural understanding whereby he retains some knowledge of God, of natural things, and of the difference between good and evil, 
and shows some regard for virtue and for good outward behavior. But so far is this understanding of nature from being sufficient to bring him to a saving knowledge of God and to true conversion that he is incapable of using it aright even in things natural and civil. Nay, further, this understanding, such as it is, man in various ways renders wholly polluted and hinders in unrighteousness, by doing which he becomes inexcusable before God. And then we'll take in Article 5, too. It's not really about the doctrine of depravity itself, but about our inability to obey the law, or about the inability of the law to save, would probably be a better way to put it. Neither can the Decalogue, delivered by God to his peculiar people, the Jews, by the hand of Moses, save men. For though it reveals the greatness of sin and more and more convinces man thereof, yet as it neither points out a remedy nor imparts strength to extricate him from this misery, but being weak through the flesh, leaves the transgressor under the curse, man cannot by this law obtain saving grapes. So those are the confessional statements of the doctrine of total depravity. I think uh, if you want the best and most uh, the best brief statement that we have in the confessions of the doctrine is question and answer eight of the catechism. We are so depraved that we are completely incapable of any good and prone to all evil. That's uh, that's what I would call the the best short summary of the doctrine. I said a little while ago that that does not mean, that doctrine does not mean that we are as bad as we can be. What some people call absolute evil. Right. And there are some people who characterize the doctrine of total depravity as really saying that. That we are as bad as we can be. That's not what the Catechism says. It's not what the other confessions say. It's not what we want to teach. And that's because there are internal and external constraints on our sin that keep us from doing everything we would be inclined to do. We are prone by nature to all evil. And I think it's proper to say that if the circumstances, if the temptation... If the pressure is right, we're probably all capable of every sin. But there are normally internal constraints, that is, the conscience, the feeling of shame that we would have if others knew of our sin, that sort of thing, those internal constraints that keep us from doing what we want to do sometimes. And there are external constraints. There's the law and the penalties of the law. There are um, rebukes of parents and of authorities and so on that keep us. There's, there's these external kinds of constraints on us too. So we, we don't do everything that we might be inclined to do. And so we're not as bad as we can be. That's not the point here. But what we mean by the doctrine of total depravity is a total inability to do good that is pleasing to God. To do anything that pleases God. And we're going to get to the scriptural proof for this. But let me just cite the one passage, one passage which I think is is, um, very telling in this regard, and that is Romans 14, verse 23. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Paul says it there in Romans 14, verse 23. And then in Hebrews, the writer says that uh, without faith it is impossible to please God. Yes. Yes, good point. Hebrews 11, that would be. What was that again? Romans 14, verse 23. He, um, he's talking there about um, 
about not doing certain things to prevent, uh, to help our brother, to not to, so that we're not a stumbling block to our brothers, so that we do not offend our brothers. Um, and but he ends the passage there, and this goes for the brother. He's talking especially about the brother. He who doubts is condemned if he eats. That if he is, if he doubts that he's doing the right thing by eating, then he's, and he eats, he's sinning, Paul is saying. He is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin. So those who don't believe can't do anything that is pleasing to God. They don't have faith. They can't do anything except sin. That's the plain implication of that passage. But as I said, we'll get to other passages as well. What we want to do is talk just a little bit more about this doctrine. And I think uh, what the way to address this is to talk about the different a- aspects of our beings. First of all, we have our minds. And when we talk about our minds and the doctrine of depravity, what we mean is our minds are totally darkened. They are unable to receive the truth of God. Now Romans 1 does say, of course, that the knowledge of God is manifest in them. That is, in those who are unbelieving. The knowledge of God is manifest in them. Um, Let me just find the passage here a minute. It's in verse 19. What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So Romans 1 says there's knowledge of God in them. And it's because of God's revelation of himself in the creation. And through that revelation and through that knowledge of God that's in them, they become inexcusable before God. That's verse 20. Because although they knew God, verse 21, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things." And so what Paul is saying there is they have this knowledge, but what do they do with it? They change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. They deliberately pervert that knowledge that they have of God that is in them. And if you go back then to verse 18... Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that's the truth, this this truth that God has made manifest in them. They are suppressing. And they suppress it by perverting it, by making idols. That's what that's all about. Some people, C.S. Lewis is one of them, say that the idolatry of the unbelieving is a kind of groping after God, that they're, they're seeking God, but they don't know how to find him. And so they end up and they kind of wander away into this idolatry. That's not what Paul teaches in Romans 1. Paul says that it's a perverting of the knowledge of God that is manifest in them, that God has shown to them. So our minds are darkened, and we darken our own minds, according to Romans chapter 1. We pervert the little bit of knowledge that we have. So the mind first. Secondly, the will. The will is perverse. And we talked about this last week, of course, the slavery of the will to sin the will's inability to will what is good, to choose what is good, the will's 
free to act according to its nature, but its nature is completely corrupt. And so it can only act within the realm of sin. It cannot choose good. It cannot desire good. It doesn't want to desire good. It has no inclination towards good at all. It loves the sphere of darkness and death and evil. So the will is perverted, completely perverted. And all our desires and affections and inclinations are corrupt. All of these things are corrupted. Even what we might call the natural love that a mother has for its child, for her child, is corrupted by unbelief. She may make that child an idol, love that child more than she loves God or anything else, so set her heart on that child that the child really becomes an idol. She may love that child too little. We see some of that today as well, though it's less common than the other, I think. And even if her love is relatively in proportion to what it should be, it's always misdirected and, uh, and perverted by her um, unbelief. It's not under the proper governance of God's law and the love of God. It can't be because she doesn't love God. So even these natural affections, which we recognize and we see in unbelieving people, are perverted, perverted by the unbelief that's in us. And the result of this depravity then is that we only sin. In according to what we are, by our fall, we only sin. We do nothing but sin. Everything we do is sin. Even our righteousnesses, as we like to think of them, are sins. Whatever is not a faith is sin. We can also look at this doctrine then a, a little from a little bit different perspective. We can say that what total depravity means is a total loss of the image of God. And the image of God is righteousness, holiness, and true knowledge of God. Those are the three things that belong to the image of God according to Ephesians 4 verse 24. We can look at that too. Ephesians 4, verse 24. We'll begin to at verse 23. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God, there's that according to God is the image of God, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So there Paul ties, excuse me, righteousness and holiness to the image of God. And the other passage is in Colossians. And that's in uh, Colossians 3, verse 10. Colossians 3, verse 10. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So the new man, there you have knowledge. Righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. Righteousness and holiness in Ephesians 4 knowledge in Colossians 3 verse 10. And here he mentions the image of God directly. Have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So if you look at depravity from that perspective, we've lost that righteousness completely. We've lost the holiness and we've lost the knowledge of God. There is no true knowledge of God in us anymore. That image is not just defaced, 
Not just corrupted, but lost. So that's, I think, the summary of the doctrine. Could you speak about image of God um, in the sense that it's not dispensed with the elementary, that it's not a physical image? So what is meant by man being in the image of God? Okay, yeah. Um, it's God created us in his image. Of course, that's in Genesis chapter 1. And that's what sets man, primarily, what sets man apart from the animals. That he was made in the image of God. You read that of no other creature. Um, that's in twenty verses 26 and following of uh, Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there's the, the basic passage. But when you go to Ephesians 4 and to Colossians 3, you see that that likeness to God that Genesis 1 talks about is a spiritual likeness. You might say there are other ways in which men are like God. We're rational creatures. We're moral creatures. We have dominion, which other creatures don't have. Those kinds of things we could say are like God, but when you get to, and, and those things are not wholly lost either in the fall, by the way. Our, uh, we've talked about the effects on our will. We've talked about the effects on our minds um, and the, therefore on our reason and our morality. Um, but the main point is of the image is a spiritual likeness. God is righteous. God is holy. God has all knowledge in himself. And God communicates this special aspect of his being to us, this righteousness, this holiness, this knowledge, in a creaturely measure we receive from him. We have this spiritual likeness to God that makes us compatible with him and able to have fellowship with him. Okay, so my, point, my question is, man is in the image of God, but this is... Is it the spiritual component that's lost? Is that yes. what you're talking about? The spiritual component is lost. The dominion, we still have dominion, though the dominion is perverted, of course. We exercise a kind of tyranny over the creation. We're usurpers, really, now. Um, ruling the creation in rebellion against God for our own ends, for the establishment of the kingdom of man, and so on. And our rationality and our more morality are diminished by the, the fall into sin. But they remain. We're still rational and moral creatures. We have natural light, as the Belgic and the Canon say. A certain measure of natural light, even now. But the spiritual component, the righteousness, the holiness, and the knowledge are gone. They don't remain. Anything? So what I want to do then next is just look at some of the scriptural teaching about this doctrine of depravity and the depravity of man. And there are some very strong statements of this depravity. It's, the, the doctrine of sin in the scriptures is found all over the place, of course. You, on every page of the scriptures, there's stuff about um, our sinfulness. But there are some passages which are particularly uh, pointed and particularly uh, telling to us here. Um, the first is Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18.
Romans 3, verses 10 to 18. And what Paul does here is he takes a bunch of quotes from the Old Testament and he strings them all together to give us a picture of what man is like after the fall. The first part, in fact, the biggest part of this quotation, this series of quotations is from Psalms 14 and 53. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. So this depravity is universal. There is none who seeks after God. There's no one who by himself, apart from grace, seeks after God. We're all in the same boat. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. So that's the universality of depravity. But then you get the completeness of depravity in the last statement. There is none who does good. No, not one. So there's the completeness. Every man is depraved. Every man is completely depraved. There is none who does good. No, not one. And then you get the description of how this depravity has affected our natures. What is the manifestation of this depravity? Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So the mouth is, is full of wickedness. There's no good that comes from our mouths. Their feet are swift to shed blood. This is the behavior. Destruction and misery are in their ways. This is the effects of, their be- of our behavior. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. And then going back to what is internal, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And then Paul concludes this in verse uh, 20 by saying, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. We do not, by uh, study of the law of God, by reading of the law of God, come to any knowledge of good in ourselves. We come instead to knowledge of sin the only possible result for us of honest study of the law. So that's probably the strongest scriptural statement of depravity, but there are others as well. I've got quite a list here. Romans 8 verse 7 is another one. Romans 8 verse 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There you have it again. We cannot please God while we are in the flesh. We do know nothing that is pleasing to God in the flesh. And it's because our minds are enmity against Him. Our minds don't accept him. Our minds do not love him, are not open to his knowledge. They are opposed to him. They are filled with enmity against him. The mind isn't subject to God's law. It cannot be subject to the law of God. Uh, Paul says, our minds cannot be subject to the law of God. This is again the completeness of the depravity in particular of our depravity, and particularly of the depravity of our minds. Then you have Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 and following. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. We talked about that um, phrase, dead in trespasses and sins, last time. We are dead to righteousness. That is, we're as dead to righteousness as a dead person today is dead to this life in this world. We have no contact with it. We have no connection with it. We have no 
relationship to it. We're cut off from this by death. We're cut off from this world. And being dead in trespasses and sins, we are cut off from righteousness, completely cut off from righteousness. And we are dead in trespasses and sins. Dead to righteousness, that's from Romans 6. Dead in trespasses and sins. The whole sphere of our life then is in this sphere of trespasses and sins. That's what he's saying. It's a, and it's a, it's a life that's really death. And then verse 2 then describes, verses 2 and 3 actually describe this depravity, this death and trespasses and sins in more detail, to which, in which, that is sins, you once walked according to the course of this world. So Paul's saying to the Ephesians, you Christians there in Ephesus, you once walked according to the course of this world. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. You walked according to the devil. The devil was your father, your spiritual father, and you were liars like he, like him. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, that's a further description of the devil. That devil works in the sons of disobedience. And we were subject to that same spirit, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. So we conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Again, you see the completeness of the depravity, don't you? These are very uh, grim descriptions of man in his fallen condition. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 is another one. Genesis 6, verse 5. This is God judging the world before he sent the flood. And he said, Then God, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice again how complete the description of it is. Every intent, continual evil, no break, no interruption of the evil. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our hearts are so wicked that we can't know them ourselves. Only the Lord can. Can know our hearts. The depth of the wickedness of our hearts. That's Jeremiah 17 verse 9. Then Titus 3 verse 3. We'll be getting to this one, the Lord willing, in our Sunday Bible study. We'll look at it tonight. Titus 3 verse 3. Again, look at how uh, he emphasizes the wickedness. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That was our condition before redemption. John 15, verse 5, takes a little bit different approach to this subject. John 15, verse 5. Jesus is talking there, is using the figure there of a vine, and he's saying, I am the true vine. John 15, verse 1. He goes on, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, my Father takes away. John 15, 
And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Notice that. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself, that good fruit which God seeks, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. You can do nothing without me, he says. That is, you cannot bear any of that fruit that God seeks. Using the metaphor, right? He's the vine. Mm -hmm. The unbeliever prior to redemption is is not abiding in the vine at all. So he's not even connected to the vine in order to to, uh, bear any, to get nutrient or bear fruit. Absolutely, yes. There is, no, there is no life coming to him from the vine, and therefore he cannot do it. 1 Corinthians 2, the end of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 2. Verses 14 and Well, just really, verse 14, yeah. But the natural man, that is the man without grace, the man as he is by the fall, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. He does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, they are foolishness to him, he cannot know them. And he cannot know them because they're spiritually discerned. That is, they're discerned only by the work of the Spirit in us. And he doesn't have the Spirit. John chapter 3. John 3, verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. That is, he cannot receive faith, he cannot receive knowledge of God, he cannot confess to Christ, he cannot receive anything unless it's given to him from heaven. It's not in him. The ability is not in him to receive anything. fits nicely with Paul saying that what 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 do we have except what we have received? Yes. And John one verse five, we we actually uh, read this verse in um, the Belgic Confession, Article fourteen, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Second Corinthians three verse five. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. We'll start to read at verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. We are not sufficient in ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. That that kind of sufficiency doesn't exist in us. And finally, Philippians 2, verse 13. This is a positive statement, but it implies the negative. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. If we do what it it pleases him, we do it because he works it in us. And not only the doing of it, Philippians 2 verse 13, Philippians 2 verse 13, 
If we, it's not only the doing, but the willing. Notice that. It is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. So those are uh, some of the scriptural passages then, and you could cite many more um, that teach the doctrine of depravity. And this is important. We, we need to understand this doctrine because we need uh, to understand how displeasing we are to God. We are completely, as we are by nature, completely displeasing to Him. There's nothing in us that pleases Him at all. And we need to understand how incapable we are of helping ourselves. We are dead, spiritually dead, and we don't have any capacity to think rightly in relation to God, to will rightly in relation to God, to desire God, to be inclined towards God, to have right affections. We don't even have these things with regard to our neighbors. We're fundamentally driven by hatred of God and of our neighbor. And our natural, even our natural affection is always perverted and corrupted by the sin that's in us. Can you speak to um, how can we say then that um, saving lives uh, like doctors do or giving of our wealth that philanthropists do, uh, etc., are, are we saying that those things are of no benefit at all? Or I think you're going to say that it, 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 it's nothing in terms of its uh, bringing us to God. But so is that the point that you were trying to make with the, um, the canons that, that we have, that man has some some regard for virtue. Some regard for virtue. But that, that regard for virtue in doing those things, Jesus said, even sinners love sinners. So, but the motivation behind all of those things, whether saving lives or philanthropy or loving your family or whatever, is still without reference to God, right? Yes, and that's the problem. The, the first and great commandment is love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And as unbelievers, we don't love God, period. We have no love for Him. We break the first commandment all the time. We hate Him. We rebel against Him. We reject the knowledge of Him. We don't love God. And the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, can only be obeyed as we love God. If we don't love God, we can't properly love our neighbor. That love will always be distorted, perverted, selfish, corrupt. Love of those doctors who are helping or the philanthropists, it's all kind of a self-love. I think so. Yeah. It's, a, it's perverted. It's perverted, yes. I like, uh, we know that uh, verse in Romans 5, that God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But verse 10 for if when we were enemies, it's, it's, yeah. it's not just the, the perversion and the loss of the, the spiritual part of the image, but um, we hate God. We, we, it's not just, I mean, obviously, he hates the, the wicked as well, mm-hmm. hence the term propitiation. So, the propitiation of, of Christ's sacrifice um, satisfies God's justice, but it's a two-way street. We we hate God. We He is our enemy in our unredeemed state. Yes. Yes. Another way to put it is, um, good works are those that glorify God. Let your light so shine before men that. They may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Well, there is no unbeliever who wants to glorify God in his works. He doesn't believe in God. 
Even though he may appeal to God. Yeah. Right? I mean, In a certain sense. It's yeah. not the triune God. Well, right. I, mean, but I, yeah, I was going to say, very easily we could say, well, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, yeah. Jesus is a savior because he's an example, but he's not a savior because of a substitutionary um, offering of himself. Mm-hmm. So the, the point of the law, we've often said, of course, that the point of the law is first to bring, give us a knowledge of sin, to create in us the knowledge of sin. And when we look at what the scriptures teach us about sin, that's what we're supposed to learn from the law. It's all that depravity that we've just been talking about, everything that the scriptures say about our depravity, that's what the law teaches us. And we have to be brought to the point that the Apostle Paul was brought in Romans 7. I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. And this is Paul in a conversion state and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am. That's where we're supposed to be when we hear the law. O wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And I thank God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's our deliverance, the only hope of deliverance we have. God's work in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Without him we are nothing and have nothing. But in him we have everything. Okay, we're going to end there.